Hello, and welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. My name's Casey Paul Griffiths, and I'm one of the authors of 50 Relics of the Restoration, and I'm your guest host for the week. I get the privilege of walking you through sections 129 to 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and I'm not going to lie, there is some big stuff going on in these sections, so let's just dive right in. Section 129 to 132 are some of the crowning teachings of this dispensation. Uh, It starts in section 129, which deals with the nature of angels, and then going up through section 132, we talk about the nature of men and women, eternal marriage, and yes, we're going to have to deal with plural marriage while we're here too, because that's part of what's going on in these sections as well. So let's start with section 129. Section 129 is kind of a Q&A with the prophet Joseph Smith. Section 129 and section 130, uh, both sections are drawn from notes that William Clayton, who was a 20-year-old English convert to the church, uh, recorded when Joseph Smith was speaking to others. So for section 129, Joseph Smith was speaking to Parley P. Pratt and several other people, and he's just repeating instructions that he'd given to the 12 apostles on June 27th, 1839, and they were recorded then by Wilford Woodruff. Uh, Elder Pratt, Parley, wasn't there when the 1839 discourse was given, and then he took off immediately and went to England for several years as a missionary, and this was recorded right when Elder Pratt got back to Nauvoo and was able to meet with him. Now, in order to understand section 129, you have to know its historical context. So, On April 28, 1842, Joseph spoke to the Nauvoo Relief Society, telling them the keys of the kingdom are about to be given to them, that they may be able to detect everything false, as well as to the elders. So it's interesting, he's talking to both men and women here, and a couple days after that, on May 1st, he talks about the keys of the kingdom, and explains that the keys are certain signs and words by which false spirits and personages may be directed from true, which cannot be revealed to the elders till the temple is completed. Now, what's he talking about? Well, around the same time, on May 4th to 5th, that's just a couple days later, Joseph administers the full version of the temple endowment for the first time in this dispensation. From the two discourses given and the timing of the first endowments, it's clear that section 129 is connected to the temple. Um, So I hope that contextualizes section 129, because as a kid, when I was reading section 129, uh, it sounds like a really, really um, simple way of explaining how you detect if a spirit that appears to you is evil or if it's good. And to summarize, and most of you probably know this already, it says that you should ask the messenger to shake your hand. If they uh, do shake your hand and you feel flesh, that means they're a resurrected person. They have a body. If they uh, excuse themselves from shaking their hand uh, and say, I don't have a body, so I can't shake your hand, that means they're the spirit of a just man or woman made perfect. And if they do try to shake your hand and you don't feel anything, that means that they're an evil spirit. Now, my question was, haven't the evil spirits read this section? Like, don't they know this whole deal? Do they fall for this trick every single time? Well, I think what Joseph Smith is teaching is a little bit deeper than that. It might answer some of those questions. So let's take a look really fast. Uh, verse one says, there are two kinds of beings in heaven, namely angels who are resurrected personages, having bodies of flesh and bones. For instance, Jesus said, handle me and see for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. 
Secondly, the spirits of just men made perfect who are not resurrected inherit the same glory. So Joseph Smith is is doing what he's done earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants. He's trying to come up with a, a system to sort of explain why angels and men and God and Jesus are all connected to each other. And one of the things that he just reveals here is that angels are people. That might not sound that radical to us, but remember in Joseph Smith's day, you had things like William Shakespeare saying, humans are a little lower than the angels. And most Christians then, and most Christians now, I believe, assume that angels are kind of a separate creation from humans. Joseph Smith is saying, no, an angel is a resurrected person or a spirit. It's just a human at a different phase of their progression. So, uh, the Hebrew and Greek words actually translated in the Old and New Testament for angel can be translated simply as messenger. And if all angels are messengers, then there's a couple more categories we could add to Joseph Smith's characterization. For instance, angels can be translated beings. Doctrine and Covenants section 6 explains that John the Beloved became a translated being. Third uh, Nephi 28 explains that the three Nephites that were chosen became translated beings. And another category that we might add in here is righteous mortal men. That's interesting, the Joseph Smith translation of... Um, the book of Genesis, Genesis 19, which is the episode with Sodom and Gomorrah, talks about two angels, but the Joseph Smith translation clarifies that they were angels of God, which were holy men. So the angels that were sent to visit Abraham and to visit Lot were probably mortal prophets that were sent with a message based on the Joseph Smith translation. Likewise, in the book of Revelation, where it talks about um, the angels of those various churches that John is writing to, the JST in each instance changed angel to servant, which means in the book of Revelation, John wasn't writing to angels. He was writing to mortal servants of God that were presiding over those branches. Now, the tricky part. This is where Joseph Smith teaches, verse 4, when a messenger comes to you saying he has a message from God, offer him your hand and request him to shake hands with you. If he be an angel, he will do so, and you will feel his hand. If he's the spirit of a just man made perfect, he will come in his glory, for that's the only way he can appear. Ask him to shake hands with you, but he will not move because it's contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive, but he will still deliver his message. If it be the devil as an angel of light, when you ask him to shake hands, he will offer you his hand, and you will not feel anything. You may therefore detect him. These are the three grand keys whereby you may know any administrations from God. Now, this is much, much more complicated than just they don't know this. Um, for instance, Wilford Woodruff records the same discourse as mentioned, and he says something here that kind of adds to our understanding as well. Uh, what Wilford Woodruff wrote was that Joseph Smith said, there are many keys to the kingdom of God. The following one will detect Satan when he transforms himself nigh into an angel of light. When Satan appears in the form of a personage unto man and reaches out his hand unto him, the man takes hold of his hand and feels no substance may know that it is Satan. For an angel of God, which is an angel of light, is a saint with his resurrected body. And when he appears and offers his hand, man will feel a substance. When he takes hold of it as he would shaking hands with a neighbor, he may know it's an angel of God. And should a saint appear unto a man whose body is not resurrected, he will never offer him his hand, for it would be against the law by which we are governed and observed this key. We may detect Satan that he deceive us not. Now, what's interesting is that President Woodruff adds in that this is against the law, that the reason why the spirit of a just man wouldn't reach out to shake your hand is because it's against the law that God has put forward. And I'm going to suggest that the reason why a wicked person, uh, an evil messenger, extends their hand is because it's 
the law. They have to obey the law. I think what Joseph Smith was trying to teach in section 129 is that evil spirits still have to obey laws. Now, we're not talking about a conflict between equal powers when we discuss good and evil. There's clearly a superior power, and there's still rules that evil spirits have to play by whether they like it or not. Joseph Smith teaches this in a discourse around the same time. On April 1st, 1842, he said, quote, it would seem that wicked spirits have their bounds, their limits and their laws by which they are governed or controlled. They know their future destiny. Hence, those that in the pre-mortal life said to our Savior, thou art come to torment us before this time. So one of the most important principles taught in section 129 is that Satan and his followers have limits. They can't overcome the limits God has placed on them and they have to operate within them. And this idea about angels and the connection between man, God, and angels is going to be expanded further in section 130. So turn to section 130. Now section 130 really is just literally Q&A with Joseph Smith. Um, Joseph Smith visits the saints in a little settlement called Ramus. Illinois. This is where his sister Sophronia lives and a bunch of other friends like Benjamin and Melissa Johnson that he's really close to. And he's visiting them um, along with the apostle Orson Hyde. And according to the history of the church, Orson Hyde gives an, uh, an address to the saints where he quotes from 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 2, and uh, which reads, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear that we shall be. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And Elder Hyde reads this and then states, It's the privilege of having the Father and Son to dwell in our hearts. Now, according to Joseph Smith's history, Joseph and Orson Hyde both go to dinner at Zephronia's house, and while they're sitting there eating, Joseph just kind of politely turns to Orson Hyde and says, can I offer some corrections on what you taught this morning? And Orson Hyde very politely says, absolutely, go ahead. So in the afternoon and evening, Joseph Smith preaches uh, several sermons. William Clayton takes notes, and those are excerpted to become section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So the first thing Joseph Smith deals with is this teaching that Orson Hyde gives that the Father and Son uh, can dwell in our hearts. And you'll note, if you look in section 130, when the Savior shall appear, we shall see him as he is. We shall see that he is a man like ourselves. And Joseph Smith is basically explaining, if the Savior can dwell in our heart, like literally, he's not the same kind of being that we are. One of the things Joseph Smith is teaching is that Jesus is like us. Earlier revelations, including section 93, have clarified this for Joseph Smith, that the Savior is a son of God. And he is the only begotten son of God, but other than his divine parentage, the creation of his body here on earth, he is a spirit that goes through the same plan, same tests, and same trials as we do. And saying that he can dwell in our hearts mean that he wasn't resurrected. He doesn't have a body right now. He didn't go through the plan uh, when he was here on earth. Uh, Joseph clearly states that uh, Jesus has a body. In fact, in a discourse given around the same time on January 5th, 1842, Joseph teaches that which is without body or parts is nothing. There was no other God in heaven, but that God who has flesh and bones. John 526 says, the father hath life in himself. Even so hath he given the son to have life in himself. God, the father took life unto himself precisely as Jesus did. Now, maybe the second most important teaching here is in verse two, when Joseph says the same sociality, which exists among us here, will exist among us there. 
only it will be coupled with eternal glory. So again, he's trying to emphasize that the good things about this life continue on in the next life. Um, having a body is good. Um, having a family is good. And the social relationships that we have here, husband, wife, um, mother, child, continue on into the next life. Sociality is just a really broad word that means social interaction. It, it, it's basically saying that the things that make our lives worth living here our friends and our family continue on in the next life, but coupled with eternal glory. So in heaven, you can spend time with your family, but not necessarily spend all your time worrying about uh, where your next meal is going to come from or your health or some of the things that weigh us down here on earth. One um, non-Latter-day Saint author captured this idea. He said, heaven is not dull. It's not static. It's not monochrome. It's endless dynamic of joy in which one is ever more oneself as one was meant to be and in which one increasingly realizes that one's potential and understanding as well as love is filled with more and more wisdom. It's the discovery, sometimes unexpected, of the deepest oneself. Heaven is reality itself. What is not heaven is less real. So heaven is is taking these relationships and making them a permanent, eternal. Parley P. Pratt uh, taught that Joseph Smith, he said it was Joseph Smith who taught me how to prize the endearing relationships of father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter. It was from, I, from him I learned of marriage fraternity. The refined sympathies and affections which endeared us to each other emanated from the fountain of divine eternal love. I loved before, but I knew not why. But now I love with a pureness and intensity of elevated, exalted feeling which would lift my soul from the transitory things of this groveling sphere and expand it as the ocean. So this sociality is is something that continues in the next life. And we don't always appreciate today how radical that was in Joseph Smith's time. Uh, most people then, and most Christians today, teach that marriage, family, and all those relationships are earthly concerns that go away when we reach heaven. Joseph Smith was teaching that those things are what heaven is all about. Um, take all the bad things about uh, our relationships here, the jealousy, the greed, the anger, the pride, and remove those, and you have this kind of divine relationship. And Jesus is just as invested in these relationships as we are, because he's one of us. Now, continuing on with this theme of angels, Jesus, and humans all being of the same type of being, but in different phases of progression, uh, Joseph answers in the next ones, Do is, is the reckoning of God's time, angel's time, father's time, and man's time according to the planets on which they reside? This is verse four. I answer yes, but there are no angels who minister to this earth, but those who do belong or have belonged to it. So, um, He's suggesting that time is relative, but he's also suggesting that angels are tied to the world that they live on, that time is relative based on different points in the universe. But the more important principle he's teaching is that angels have certain connections to the worlds that they lived on because they were once mortal beings. In fact, you you hear talk of the concept or idea of a guardian angel, someone that watches over you. Well, Joseph Smith would say a guardian angel is probably someone that's connected to you because they're part of your family. 
Another president of the church, this is President Joseph F. Smith, taught as much when he said, When messengers are sent to minister to the inhabitants of this earth, they are not strangers, but from the ranks of our kindred friends, fellow beings, and fellow servants. The ancient prophets who died were those who came to visit their fellow creatures upon the earth. They came to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and in like manner our father, mothers, brothers, sisters, and friends who've passed away from this earth having been faithful and worthy to enjoy these rights and privileges, have a mission given to them to visit their relatives and friends upon the earth, bringing from the divine presence messages of love, of warning, reproof, and instruction to those whom they've learned to love in the flesh. And a lot of this stuff, too, when Joseph Smith says angels may not reside on a planet like this earth, might mean that when you're resurrected, you're not restricted to just one world any longer, but you still have these familial connections. You're Love for your wife or your children or your children's children, your descendants, doesn't lessen in the next life. It doesn't go away. It's not a human or mortal thing. It's an eternal thing that grows and deepens. Now, when it comes to other things, uh, the Urim and Thummim that he mentions here, verse uh, 10, a white stone mentioned in Revelation 2.17 becomes a Urim and Thummim. Each individual receives one whereby things are made known pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms that are made known. Now, during Joseph Smith's time, it appears that the term Urim and Thummim was kind of a broad term used to describe different physical objects being to receive revelation. Joseph Smith used several instruments when he translated the Book of Mormon, most chiefly the Nephite interpreters, but there's also some sources that indicate that he used a brown seer stone. It doesn't matter which one he used, he referred to both of them as Urim and Thummim, as divine instruments, physical instruments used to get revelation. Uh, All Joseph Smith is saying is that when a person goes into the next life, instruments of revelation are made more available to them and is greater knowledge. There's also some scholars that think that the white stone in the book of Revelation is a, a, a symbol. Back in the days when the book of Revelation was written, uh, it was the custom in ancient Greece and Rome to give a white stone to the victor in an athletic contest. And so the white stone could also be a symbol of victory that you've overcome, that you've gained a new name, and that now you're ready to move on to celestial glory. Now, moving on, a really important passage in section 130 is also verses uh, 12 through 17, where you'll recall Joseph Smith basically says, I once was praying really earnestly to know the time of the second coming. Joseph Smith makes reference to a voice declaring to him the question of the civil war and the bloodshed previous to the Son of Man erupting first in South Carolina. This is a reference to section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the prophecy on war. Then he adds, I was once praying very earnestly to know the time of the coming of the Son of Man, when I heard a voice repeat the following, Joseph, my son, if thou livest until thou art 85 years old, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. Therefore, let this suffice. Trouble me no more on this matter. I was left thus without being able to decide whether this coming referred to the beginning of the millennium or to some previous appearing or whether I should die and thus see his face. I believe this coming of the Son of Man will not be any sooner than this time. Now, what Joseph does here is actually really wise. Um, He's given a revelation that if he lives to be 85, he'll see the Savior, but he doesn't um, jump to conclusions. 
He's very, very careful and measured. And this is maybe the same way we need to be towards the second coming. He says, I didn't know if this meant that I was going to, um, that, that that was going to be the second coming, which case second coming would be in 1890. Joseph Smith was born in 1805. Or if it was, um, a previous appearing, if the savior would just come in a, an appearance previous to the second coming, or if he would die at that time. So he, he weighs all of his options. Uh, by the way, Joseph Smith uh, does die before then, and the second coming clearly didn't happen in 1890 unless we all miss something major, but there is an appearance that happens in 1890. You'll note that 1890 is when official declaration one, also known as the manifesto, is given. That is when President Wilford Woodruff was told basically that... Um, he was. It was time to rescind plural marriage, that if they didn't end plural marriage, the temples would be closed down and the, the temple work was more important. So that's probably what the Savior was referring to there. Joseph Smith is wise enough when he gets a little knowledge about the second coming to not jump to conclusions. And I would say the same thing too. If you have a, a friend or a cousin or yourself that receives a blessing, even a patriarchal blessing, that says she'll see the second coming, you might want to sit down and go, oof, does that mean that I'll be there in person or that I'll be there as a resurrected being? Or what does that mean? And not necessarily get too crazy about locking that prophecy into one specific interpretation. Prophecies are true and they come true. I know that, but they can be fulfilled in surprising ways. And Joseph is just demonstrating good approaches here, which is don't jump to conclusions. Now, continuing on, and there's so much good stuff in this section. I can't believe that they just didn't make section 129 and section 130 their own block, but we got to keep going. Whatever principle of intelligence a man attains to this life, it will rise with him in the next. Joseph Smith is big on learning, and he believes really strongly in people learning. There is a law, verse 20, irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. When we obtain any blessings from God, it is by obedience that law upon which is predicated. Now, God obeys the law. Some people will ask the question of, is God the creator of the law or does God just obey the law? Is the law uh, eternal as well? Um, it's a chicken and egg kind of thing because God obeys the law. God doesn't break the law, but God is the author of and enforcer of the laws too. So it's not really useful to ask that question. Um, God does obey laws and, and plays within sets of rules. That's how we can have faith in him because he obeys laws. Therefore, he's predictable. If you do what he asks you to do, you receive blessings. If you don't, you don't receive blessings. It's kind of as simple as that. And then maybe one of the most important teachings here too, verse 22, the father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. A man may receive the Holy Ghost and it may descend upon him and not tarry with him. Now, Latter-day Saints believe that God and Jesus are both physical beings. And this is maybe bringing us back to the question that set up this whole section. Orson Pratt had taught that, or Orson Hyde, sorry, had taught that God and Jesus could dwell in our hearts. Joseph Smith starts out by saying, no, the Savior is a man. When we see him, we'll see that he's like us. And then he ends the section by taking it one step further. The Father also has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. Around this time, Joseph Smith is giving the last and greatest teachings of this dispensation. Among them, 
In a sermon recorded by Wilford Woodruff, also known as the King Follett Sermon, Joseph Smith taught, God who sits in yonder heavens is a man like yourselves. That God, if you were to see him today, that holds the worlds, you would see like a man in form like yourselves. Adam was made in his image and talked with him and walked with him. As the Father hath power in himself, so hath the Son power in himself to do what the Father did, even to lay down his body and take it up again. So the last conclusion Joseph Smith comes to is... Humans, angels, Jesus, and God are all the same kind of being. What Jesus and God show is what our potential is, what we can become like if we listen to God, follow his counsel, and keep the commandments. So, oh, wonderful, amazing stuff going here. And if we figured out now that we can be like God, maybe the next big question to answer is, what is God's life like? And what will it mean to become like God? Okay, for that, turn to section 131. Section 131 is also given in Ramus, Illinois, but at a separate time, May 16th, 1843. You remember, he goes to Ramus because his sister Sophronia lives there. He also has some really good friends there. In this particular case, he's meeting with two friends named Benjamin and Melissa Johnson. Benjamin and Melissa Johnson are this wonderful married couple that Joseph Smith is very, very good friends with. And he's he's he teaches to a congregation, but he also gives instruction in the home of Benjamin and Melissa Johnson. And William Clayton records this, and it becomes section 131 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So let's start out. It says, verse 1, In the celestial glory there are three heavens or degrees. And in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. If he does not, he cannot obtain it. He may enter into the other, but that's the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. So he's talking to Benjamin Melissa Johnson when he gives this instruction. Initially, he sits this couple down and says, it's possible for you to be married again. And Benjamin kind of makes a joke. Benjamin says, in the evening, he, Joseph Smith, called my wife and I to come and sit down, for he wished us to marry according to the law of the Lord. I thought it was a joke and said I should not marry my wife again unless she courted me, for I did it all the first time. He said, Joseph chided my levity, told me he was in earnest, and so it proved, for we stood up and were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what Joseph Smith teaches here is is that marriage is an order of the priesthood. In fact, if you look at the section, You'll notice that um, the phrase meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage is in brackets. It was added later on for clarification of what Joseph was talking about. Joseph just describes marriage as an order of the priesthood. But interestingly, it's an order of the priesthood that both men and women can enter into. Uh, Joseph Smith hints at this in other discourses that he gives. Um, for instance, in on August 27, 1843, he records that there are three grand orders of the priesthood. You might be listening to this and saying to yourself, well, there's only two orders of the priesthood. Joseph Smith does describe two orders of the priesthood, Aaronic and Melchizedek, but then says there's another order, which he calls the patriarchal order of the priesthood. I have... Other friends that call it the familial order of the priesthood because patriarchal is a little politically charged nowadays, but what it basically is is an order of the priesthood that both men and women can enter into. In fact, when Joseph Smith introduces this third order of the priesthood, and rather than explaining anything, he says, go to and finish that temple, the Nauvoo temple, and God will fill it with power, and then you'll know more about this priesthood. So, 
this kind of priesthood is inherent to temples. And what do we do in temples? We create eternal families. Going on, Joseph Smith teaches verse five, the more sure word of prophecy means a man's knowing that he is sealed up to eternal life by revelation in the spirit of prophecy through the power of the holy priesthood. And he also says it's impossible for a man to be saved in ignorance. So the more sure word of prophecy is a phrase from second Peter chapter one, verse 19 in the new Testament, where Peter wrote, we also have a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and that day star arise in your hearts. Peter also a couple verses later says, make your calling and election sure. Now it seems like the more sure word of prophecy and having your calling and election made sure are all the same thing, that this is an assurance that you're sealed up unto eternal life. Um, this assurance can come, uh, through Jesus Christ himself or, but it basically is a testimony that you're going to make it. You're going to make it to the celestial kingdom. Um, Joseph Smith ends this item of instruction by saying, there's no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter, but it is more fine or pure. And it can only be discerned by pure eyes when we cannot see it. But when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. So Joseph Smith is also teaching that matter is eternal. Humans, God, uh, the world around us are, um, are also uh, eternal things that will exist forever and have the potential of becoming eternal and eventually becoming uh, like God in the same sense that God is eternal and exalted and has eternal life. Now, let's turn to section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And this is um, one of the most challenging but also beautiful uh, sections in the Doctrine and Covenants. This is where the doctrine of eternal marriage is fully fleshed out. It's also where the doctrine of plural marriage is introduced. I know that that's challenging for some people. So let me just put this in context. Uh, section 132 was given specifically because Emma Smith was really struggling with plural marriage, which is totally understandable. Um, it would be really, really difficult uh, to go through what Emma did. And um, according to William Clayton, Joseph Smith's scribe, the, the revelation is given because Hiram Smith and Joseph Smith are specifically wrestling with how to help um, Emma understand it. Uh, William Clayton records, on the morning of the 12th of July, 1843, Joseph and Hiram Smith came into the office on the upper story of the brick store on the bank of the Mississippi River. They were talking on the subject of plural marriage. Hiram said to Joseph, if you will write the revelation on celestial marriage, I will take it and read it to Emma, and I believe I can convince her of its truth, Or and you will hereafter have peace. Joseph smiled and remarked, you do not know Emma as well as I do. Hiram repeated his opinion and further remarked, the doctrine is so plain I can convince any reasonable man or woman of its truth, purity, and heavenly origin, or words to that effect. Joseph then said, well, I will write the revelation and we will see he then requested me to get the paper and prepare to write. Hiram very urgently requested Joseph to write the revelation by means of the Yerman Thummim, but Joseph in reply said he did not need to. He knew the revelation perfectly from beginning to end. William Clayton then said that Joseph and Hiram sat down and wrote the revelation out. Uh, he said that when it was done, Joseph Smith asked William to read the revelation back to him, and Joseph Smith pronounced it correct. Hiram then took the revelation to meet with Emma. According to William Clayton, he said, Joseph remained with me in the office until Hiram returned. When he came back, 
Joseph asked him how he had succeeded. Hiram replied he'd never received a more severe talking to in his life, that Emma was very bitter and full of resentment and anger. Joseph quietly remarked, I told you, you did not know Emma as well as I did. He then put the revelation in his pocket and they both left the office. So the context here is is Emma's struggles to understand it. And I hope that that story, which is the context for section 132, doesn't make it sound like Joseph was letting Hiram or William Clayton or anybody else uh, deal with this. He goes to Emma the next day in his journal and it records, I spent several hours in conversation with sister Emma. Um, he, he was probably having conversations with Emma about this for years and years and was just wise enough to ask his friends and family for help because this is a really, really difficult principle. Now, what section 132 teaches is that if a person is married by the right authority in the right place and then stays faithful to their covenants, the phrase that's used in section 132 is that they're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, is that their marriage becomes eternal. It lists out the blessings that a person receives if they are sealed by the right authority and then sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And the blessings that um, are explained here is one of the longest verses in all of Scripture. Uh, Verse 29, or verse 19 of Doctrine and Covenants 132, explain the blessings. So does verse 20. But I'll just read verse 20 so you can understand this. They shall be gods because they have no end. Therefore, they shall be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then shall they be above all because all things are subject unto them. They shall be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. So that's the blessing that's given to a person that obeys this. And the church still practices this teaching. This is the blessing that comes from an eternal marriage where a person lives according to the gospel and is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, the rest of the section deals with some more difficult questions, which surrounded the practice of plural marriage, which is really what Emma's struggling with here. Um, So uh, rather than trying to go into Secular explanations for why the saints practice plural marriage, I think the best approach is to just stick to section 132. And in section 132, there's at least four reasons given for why the saints are commanded to practice plural marriage. The first one is uh, that the saints are commanded to restore all things. Joseph Smith is serious about the Bible and what it teaches. And the Bible talks about plural marriage. In fact, some of the most righteous people, including Jacob, Israel, the the ancestor of the family that the whole book is about, is a polygamist. He practices plural marriage. Now, in section 132, specifically verse 45, Uh, The Lord tells Joseph Smith, I have conferred upon you the keys and power of the priesthood, wherein I restore all things and make all things known unto you in due time. Now, Joseph, throughout his prophetic career, constantly teaches that he's restoring all things. Uh, One person in Nauvoo recorded that Joseph astonished his hearers by preaching on the restoration of all things and said that as it was anciently with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so would it be again. Elizar Snow said, when I reflected that I was living in the dispensation of the fullness of times, embracing all other dispensations, surely plural marriage must necessarily be included. So first point the Lord made. They are bringing back everything that's ever been given. And plural marriage was part and parcel of those things. So if it existed anciently, it's going to be brought back in the latter days. Plural marriage is one of those things. Now, secondly, the Lord actually does 
make comparisons between Abraham and the people that have been asked to enter into plural marriage. So it's clear from the text, the plural marriage was supposed to be an Abrahamic trial. Uh, The Lord says in verse 50, I've seen your sacrifices and will forgive all your sins. I have seen your sacrifices in obedience to that which I have told you. Go, therefore, and I make a way for your escape as I accepted the offering of Abraham of his son Isaac. So plural marriage was supposed to be hard. It was supposed to be really difficult. And it was. I mean, Brigham Young is usually the person that we think of. When we think of plural marriage, Brigham Young, when he was speaking about plural marriage and its introduction to him, uh, later said, quote, some of these, my brethren, know what my feelings were at the time Joseph revealed this doctrine. I was not desirous of shrinking from any duty, nor failing in the least to do as I was commanded, but it was the first time in my life that I desired the grave. And I could hardly get over it for a long time. So no less a person than Brigham Young uh, struggled with this. It was really, really difficult for him. And what plural marriage did basically was was ask the saints to think deeply and commit to the gospel or not. Uh, plural marriage made people commit. And you got to admit that today being a Latter-day Saint is different than being a member of another faith. You know, it's, it's, it's not just a church, it's a lifestyle, it's almost an ethnicity. Plural marriage and the commitments surrounding it that our ancestors entered into created this unique uh, new culture, this, this kind of interesting uh, new, new religion on the scene. Um, plural marriage helped mold us into a distinct and unique people. That sacrifice that people entered into was, was, was powerful. Now, continuing on, verse 63, the Lord also teaches that plural marriage was intended to bring spirits to earth through certain familial bloodlines, just like the Lord did anciently with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 63, the Lord says, they were given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth according to my commandments and to fulfill the promise which was given by my father, before the foundation of the world and for their exaltation in the eternal worlds that they may bear the souls of men for herein is the work of my father continued that he may be glorified. So a big part of the revelation was to bring, uh, children to earth through these righteous families, just like was done anciently. Um, in my classes, sometimes I'll, I'll pause at this point when we're discussing section 132 and say, how many of you had an ancestor that practiced plural marriage? And honestly, almost three quarters, the hands go up. Uh, most of us, a lot of members of the church, uh, came to earth through these familial bloodlines and plural marriage accomplished that. Um, Finally, the Lord says that plural marriage was necessary for exaltation in the eternities. Section 132, going all the way back to the beginning. Behold, I reveal unto you a new and everlasting covenant. If ye abide not that covenant, then ye are damned, for no one can reject this covenant and be permitted to enter into my glory. For all who will have a blessing in my hand shall abide the law, which was appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof, as were instituted from before the foundation of the world. And as pertaining to the new and everlasting covenant. It was instituted for the fullness of my glory. And he that receiveth the fullness thereof must and shall abide the law, or he shall be damned, saith the Lord. So plural marriage was revealed at a time before 
we had all the ordinances for the dead that we have today. The first place where we did sealings and endowments and initiatories for the dead wasn't in Nauvoo. It was in St. George. And in Nauvoo, they felt like they had to give everybody a chance to be sealed so that they could enter into exaltations. This led to a couple interesting things. Um, number one, there were various kinds of sealing in Nauvoo. For instance, there were sealings for time only, where spouses were only married for the duration of this life. There were sealings for time and eternity, where they were sealed for the duration of this life and the next. And then there were eternity-only sealings, where people were sealed into family units. There were also adoptive sealings, where some people were sealed into families, but not as husband and wife, but as, as, as son or daughter. These sealings were intended to create this kind of new eternal family. Uh, the saints didn't want to just be friends and congregants with each other. They didn't want to just go to the same church on Sunday. They saw themselves as a new family, the family of God. And these sealing ordinances brought them all together. Um, we had a couple things to work out uh, later on. For instance, adoptive sealings eventually ended because people were neglecting their families. You can see the temptation to try and get sealed into an apostle's family. You're thinking, my family is not good enough. Um, so they, they, they made rules later on that a person had to stay within their own bloodline, that you should be sealed to your own family and everything else we would work out during the thousand years after the savior comes, but before the end of the world, in other words, the millennium. There were several individuals in uh, Nauvoo that were sealed to Joseph Smith for eternity only. So they weren't his wives or or family members in this life. They were intended to be in the eternities, and we don't know exactly how those relationships worked either. All these things had the net effect of creating eternal relationships. So again, the, the questions these sections are dealing with are, what kind of being is a is a person? Joseph Smith's answer is, a human is the same as an angel, and Christ is the same, and God is the same. And then the question is, well, what do we do in the next life? How do we unlock human potential? And the answer the Savior gives is, through the families that I've already given you down here on earth, I've given you a taste of eternity that you can have forever in the next life. Questions regarding marriage and eternal marriage were always going to come up when it comes to seeing it that way. If we believe in eternal marriage, what happens if a person loses a spouse and gets remarried? Uh, what happens to a person like Hiram Smith? Hiram Smith lost his first wife, Jerusha, in 1835. And then he was remarried to an English convert named Mary Fielding, who eventually is going to become the mother of the president, Joseph F. Smith, and the grandmother of Joseph Fielding Smith, two presidents of the church. That's a good marriage there. But does he have to choose between Mary and Jerusha? No. The the Lord was teaching that those relationships can both endure. Now, when it comes to women, women can also be sealed to multiple men, according to the church handbook as it exists today. It's just we don't have precedence in the scriptures of a living woman um, being sealed to more than one man simultaneously. So, what the handbook states today is that a woman whose husband is deceased can enter into uh, a, a, a multiple ceilings with the explicit acknowledgement that we don't know exactly what happens uh, to those relationships in the next life. Now, when it comes to how plural marriage was introduced, I just want you to know that it wasn't 
uh, coercive. So in the in these instances, part of these verses are to try and convince Emma. And the Lord emphasizes the importance of the covenant and tells her that there will be consequences if she doesn't accept it. But this is uh, where much is given, much is required kind of situation. Emma has made covenants and the Lord's pleading with her to accept this particular teaching. Um, she does eventually, though she always has a difficult time with plural marriage, and that is totally Totally understandable. But I want to give you a feel for what it was like for someone else in Nauvoo to have plural marriage explained to them. There's a woman named Lucy Walker um, who who has plural marriage explained to her. She she said uh, later on, quote, every feeling of my soul revolted against it. Said I, the same God who sent this message is the being that I have worshipped from my early childhood, and he must manifest his will to me. He walked across the room, this is Joseph Smith, returned and stood before me with the most beautiful expression of countenance and said, God Almighty bless you. You shall have a manifestation of the will of God concerning you, a testimony that you can never deny. I will tell you what it shall be. It shall be joy and peace that you never knew. So he doesn't coerce her. He just basically says, go and get a manifestation. Find out if this is true. She later records, oh, how earnestly I prayed for those words to be fulfilled. It was near dawn after another sleepless night when my room was lighted up by heavenly influence. To me, it was in comparison like the brilliant sun bursting through the darkest cloud. The words of the prophet were indeed fulfilled. My soul was filled with a calm, sweet peace that I never knew. Supreme happiness took possession of me. And I received a powerful and irresistible testimony of the truth of plural marriage, which has been like an anchor to the soul through all the trials of life. I felt that I must go out in the morning air and give vent to the joy and gratitude that filled my soul. As I descended the stairs, President Smith opened the door below, took me by the hand and said, thank God you have the testimony. I too have prayed. He led me to a chair, placed his hands upon my head and blessed me with every blessing my heart could possibly desire. So, Joseph Smith introduces this principle to people, but he also allows them to gain their own testimony. And at this point in time, you could gain a testimony. Uh, It was a commandment to the saints now. Now, I want to emphasize it's not a commandment to us today. In fact, we're forbidden to practice plural marriage uh, ever since official declaration two was given. That's been the practice of the church. Um, But Back then, this was a commandment, and they had gained a testimony of it, a spiritual witness. Uh, my wife is an ancestor of a, a, a person that practiced plural marriage, Heber C. Kimball. And uh, Heber C. Kimball had an especially difficult trial. He had plural marriage introduced to him and then was told that he couldn't tell his wife, uh, Valate, about it. And he struggles with this. He walks around Nauvoo for a couple hours wondering how he can do this. He comes home and sees his wife and almost bursts into tears. And she walks over to him and says, I know what you've been asked to do. And she also said, and I've seen in vision all the people that will come to our family line because of this. And I think you should do it. Now, I've always thought to myself, if, if a revelation gets my wife to earth, then I'm okay with it. And I'm grateful that at that time they entered into it today. I'm also grateful. I'll admit that we don't have to practice this today. Um, it would be a really, really severe trial, but I'm grateful for eternal marriage and the principles that are revealed in this section about who and what we are and what we can be. Marriage is a wonderful blessing that opened the doors of eternity to us. But what the Lord is trying to teach us overall is regardless of your status, whether you're single or married or wherever you're at in your life, you have within you the seed of Godhood. You have the potential to become like 
the Father and the Son and gain the same types of gifts and blessings and exaltation that you can have. That is what the gospel is all about. And I'm so grateful for this teaching and how it's reflected my life and not just the way I see myself, but the way I see the people that I love and the fact that I can have eternal relationships with them and the way that I see complete strangers on the street, because every single one of them is also a son or daughter of God with potential to do the same things that we can do. As the gospel is true, these revelations are difficult and wonderful and painful and joyful. It's just the gospel all summed up in a couple um, few passages of scripture. I'm grateful for the restoration, mostly grateful for Jesus Christ. And I bear testimony to you of the truthfulness of these teachings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that's our discussion for this week. Um, if you have any further questions or, or, or you want to follow up on this, feel free to contact me or reach out through Cedar Fort and I'll be happy to help you out. I hope that you have a great week. I hope that you love studying these sections and I'll see you next time on the Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges.